Good morning. I'm Shamita Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. But first, let's catch up with some of the day's top headlines. The coronavirus claimed nearly 1,500 lives Wednesday. It was the single deadliest day in the U.S. this summer, and as schools are reopening, more than 2,000 students have been quarantined across five states because of possible COVID-19 exposure. New numbers out today show 963,000 people filed unemployment claims last week. It's the first time since March that less than one million people applied for assistance. And people in northern Los Angeles are under evacuation orders after a brush fire erupted late Wednesday night. Officials worry the fire could grow. Weather conditions are expected to remain hot and dry until at least Monday. When a coronavirus vaccine first becomes available, there's one person who will decide whether it's safe and effective enough to be given to tens of millions of Americans. That person is Dr. Peter Marks, a top official at the Food and Drug Administration. The Washington Post actually profiled Marks and is calling him the most important government employee most people have never heard of. Mm -hmm. Some things you need to know about Marks. He joined the FDA in 2012 and leads the agency's Center for Biologics Evaluation and Research. Now, he started out as a physician and served as the chief clinical officer of the cancer hospital at Yale. He's also spent some time working in the pharmaceutical industry. One former FDA official told The Washington Post, I wouldn't want to be in his position. I mean, there's no way to overstate what a huge responsibility he has. And some of his colleagues in the scientific community say they're worried about the intense political pressure Marx is under to greenlight something as fast as possible. But he said he won't approve a vaccine in the U.S. unless it's proven to be safe and at least 50 percent more effective than a placebo. Although the Post points out, ultimately, Mark's bosses, who are politically appointed, could overrule any decision he makes about a future vaccine. Shortness of breath, a chronic rattling cough, tightness in your chest— These are some of the symptoms of black lung, a disease that many people get after years of working in coal mines. And even though the American coal miner comes up a lot in our elections and in campaign rhetoric, many retired miners say that when it comes to their health, they feel totally abandoned. Politico takes us to West Virginia, coal country. And in this story, you get a chance to tag along with a group of retired miners spending the day at the state capitol. Let me set the scene for you. It's early spring, a few weeks before the pandemic really shuts things down. And these miners are part of the local chapter of the United Mine Workers of America. And these union members are at the Capitol to lobby for money to address black lung disease. The way these miners tell it to Politico, if you worked in the mines for at least a decade, you probably have the disease and it's likely that you'll die from it. 25,000 people across the country are currently covered by a federal black lung fund that provides financial support to retired miners who've been diagnosed with the disease. But as Politico and other news outlets have already pointed out, that federal fund doesn't have enough money. And Mm -hmm. I'm talking $4 billion in the red. Yes, billion with a B. Now that's debt to the U.S. Treasury. Yeah, so what these West Virginia miners are trying to do at the state capitol is convince lawmakers to approve a bill to give people with black lung up to $5,000 a year. 
Politico introduces us to one retired miner named Dennis Dixon. Dennis hasn't been down in the mine since 1985. But he worked for years in what's called low coal, where he had to crawl through small tunnels, no more than two and a half feet wide, in thick dust. This is his first day of lobbying. He's there in the Capitol building with his wife. He's got his list of names of representatives that he wants to track down. And despite what they were trying to do and this health crisis, the bill died in the state capitol. Now these union members plan to vote those lawmakers out of office this November. This week, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo told people in Belarus the United States stands with them. We want the people of Belarus to have the freedoms that they're demanding that they think are in their best interests. If you haven't been following, I want to turn to Vox, which has a great explainer on what exactly is going on in Belarus. Last Sunday, the country held elections. Sitting President Alexander Lukashenko was declared the winner. He's been in power since 1994. That's 26 years. Now, in the lead-up to the election, the country's election commission barred two of the top three opposition candidates from running. One of the president's main challengers was arrested. And this is where it gets really interesting. Mm -hmm. Because that opposition leader could no longer run, his wife stepped in to run in his place. Her name is Svetlana Tikhonovskaya. She's 37 years old and a stay-at-home mom with no political experience. Yeah, and surprisingly, the government allowed her to run. Vox says Lukashenko didn't see her as a threat, but the opposition to him rallied around her cause. And in fact, this is kind of incredible. She pledged that if she won the election, which seemed unlikely when she started out, she would immediately hold free elections to let someone who actually wanted to be president take over. And in that way, she became a proxy for this no-confidence vote. Mm-hmm. Exit polls showed Tikhonovskaya coming away with 80% of the vote. But then the official results come in. Lukashenko, the incumbent president, was declared the runaway winner. So Mm. for the past few days, people have been out on the streets protesting mostly peacefully. And yet the government is deploying tear gas, stun grenades, even rubber bullets to quiet the unrest. Thousands of people have been detained, hundreds of people wounded, and at least two protesters have died. According to Bloomberg, the EU's foreign policy chief called the election neither free nor fair. And now the EU is considering putting sanctions on Belarus and putting pressure on its government to address the protesters' calls for free speech and fair elections. As for Tikhonovskaya, she has since fled to Lithuania. She's saying she's doing it for the safety of her children. Duarte, adults have proven they can sometimes make a real mess of the world. Maybe it's time that we put kids in charge. That's the idea behind an experiment that's taking place right now in Germany. The experiment happens every other year. Fast Company has the details. Now, it's called Mini Munich. It's a pretend city where children are politicians and business leaders. They pass laws and pay taxes. And they're given power to reimagine what their city could look like while working through some of the typical bureaucratic channels. The game lasts for weeks, and kids 7 to 15 years old play for free. Local government and private donors fund the program. This year, the kids voted for secession. The western part of Mini Munich separated and became its own republic. It was a movement that they called Wexit, very cleverly. But unlike (laughs) the adults over in London, these kids eventually worked out their differences. And in the final week of Mini Munich, they reunited. You can find links to all these stories in today's show notes page. 
And if you're enjoying the show, we would love to ask you to leave us a rating and leave us a review. It really helps other people find the show. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. 